outside the Frederick News Post Office, it appears corn is growing, cherry tomatoes, and blackberries too. The crops are part of one of the community gardens around the city. The food from these gardens goes to the Frederick Food Security Network, which works with partners to distribute food to those in food deserts and those who are food insecure. I spoke with the program manager of the Frederick Food Security Network and a student from Hood College who's a volunteer. Hey, my name is Connie Ray, and I'm the program manager for the Frederick Food Security Network based out of Hood College. And I'm Heidi Gonzalez. I'll be a sophomore at Hood, majoring in biology in the fall. All right, and so you told me this that you were digging holes this morning, so where were you digging holes? That's right, over at Hood College, behind Carson Cottage, and kind of near the on-campus garden, we're, we're going to be putting up a greenhouse um, as well as a covered wash station to sort of expand our operations. So we were over there digging some of the holes, getting ready for inspection so that we can move on uh, with construction of that greenhouse. Perfect. So now tell me a little bit about the Food Security Network and what some of these local gardens around here can help with. So the Frederick Food Security Network is a relatively new program. We started in 2017 uh, with this idea of building and kind of establishing these community gardens around Frederick, specifically in areas that are would be classified as food deserts. Um, food deserts might have a number of different criteria of how some people would define them, but the basic principle is that they are primarily low-income areas without easy access to a grocery store, and a large percentage of people there don't have their own personal vehicle, so that it's very cumbersome for them to be able to get to the grocery store. They have to get a ride from somebody or take public transportation or, in many cases, walk, and keep in mind that that's not just walking there but walking back with all the groceries in hand. So we wanted to... Uh, kind of embrace urban agriculture as one um, one part of a solution to this problem in Frederick. And so in 2017, um, the group at Hood College mapped out the food deserts to, you know, really understand what the areas were that we needed to target. Um, and then I was brought on at the time as an AmeriCorps VISTA to sort of turn this idea into reality. And it's really grown tremendously in the last two years. Uh, we started off with one pilot garden at the Religious Coalition for Emergency Human Needs, which is located right in the middle of one of Frederick City's food deserts. Um, they had a vacant plot of land behind their offices and next to their homeless shelter, and they weren't doing anything with it apart from once a year having a party. And so they were very enthusiastic to work with us to turn that into a garden. So that was our pilot site where we started, and since then we have five gardens. So three of those have been newly built by us uh, and with our partners as well. So we have Religious Coalition, the Islamic Society of Frederick, and the Boys and Girls Club of Frederick are ones that we've helped build. And then we've also recruited existing gardens into the network as well, and those would be the Frederick News Post Garden as well as the, um, the campus garden, actually, at Hood College campus. It's also run by Frederick Memorial Hospital. And so, you know, you kind of see Frederick – or community gardens are, it's not a new idea. These have been around for a long time um, across the United States. But one of the issues that you do see in the literature about community gardens is while, while they can be very effective at um, mitigating food insecurity and also promoting a sense of community and beautification, one of the issues nationwide is their longevity. You know, oftentimes you'll have one person who's really passionate about it come in and start this garden and then they run into a funding issue or that person moves or gets a new job and they're too busy. And then oftentimes after only a year or two, the gardens aren't being used anymore. 
And so the Frederick Food Security Network is kind of a response to that. And that's why we're not only building gardens, but recruiting other gardens is so that we can provide that ongoing support for them to be able to face those issues um, with some support and be able to get, you know, kind of over the hump. And so how, will this will this greenhouse be a part of this food security network? Yes. So the other issue is that food security affects people year round. Um, and unfortunately, we're limited in terms of growing produce to the traditional growing season. So right now we're in a peak produce time. We've got lots of produce that we're giving out every week. Um, but that's that won't be the case come October, November. Um, and so we are building a greenhouse on Hood College campus, and we've also uh, taken over the two greenhouses at the Scott Key Center in order to be able to grow produce for a longer period of the year and to be able to distribute it as well. And what kind of produce is grown? Um, we try to base what we grow not only off of what grows well here in our climate, but also based off of what the people who are receiving the produce want to eat. Um, we do surveys at the end of each growing season among the clientele who would be receiving the produce uh, with a long list of primarily vegetables, some fruits, um, and asking them to rank how likely they would be to eat it. And we try to focus the bulk of our growing on those ones that receive a really positive response. And we certainly grow other produce as well um, for those who do want it or those who would be willing to try it but haven't necessarily eaten it or cooked with it before. But we do try to base it off of what people want to eat so that we're also reducing any food waste. We're not giving out food that people are just throwing away when they get home. And so how does the food go from the garden to the people who need it? So each garden is run independently by each organization who hosts it, um, and distribution works a little bit differently uh, for each garden. So, for example, Boys and Girls Club is a very small garden. They have primarily two beds that they're working with. So all of their distribution is internal. The kids who are there for the summer or for the after-school programs, they're not only growing it themselves, but they're also taking it home as well. For some of our bigger gardens, so primarily the Hood College, FMH Garden, as well as the FMP Garden, and the Religious Coalition Garden, and to some extent the Islamic Society as well. Um, We either have them bring produce to Hood College, or we sometimes send students to help pick it up, um, and they bring it to our new cold storage room. So this is something new for this season. Uh, Generously, uh, the the Rotary Club generously gave us the funds to build that with a grant earlier this year, and so now that produce can be stored in the cold storage room until Tuesday afternoons, usually when our students go through and sort it and wash what needs to be washed and then arrange it for the distribution partners to pick up every Wednesday. And so describe this new cold storage room for me. Yeah, so we basically converted an existing room. It was a music practice room in the basement of Carson Cottage on Hood College campus. And it was not necessarily a room that was getting used a lot. It was quite small if you're going to be sitting and playing an instrument. And so we got uh, approval from the administration to convert it into cold storage. So it's really an ideal location. It's right next to where we're building our greenhouse. It's across the hedge from where the on-campus garden is. Um, And being in the basement, it's naturally cooler. So we were able to convert the room. We put insulation over the walls. We installed a a window air conditioning unit uh, attached to a cool bot, which allows it to get colder than normally an air conditioning unit could get it. Um, You know, put plastic on the floors and then a lot of shelving. And so um, you mentioned that POTUS is based on what people like. So what might be found out outside of the FMP's office in our garden right now? 
Yeah, so FNP was actually planted before they joined the network this year. Um, so we'll definitely be working with them more next year in terms of their planting plan. Um, but David Munns, who's the uh, master gardener and the garden coordinator for this garden, you'll find a lot of tomatoes, um, a lot of peppers, both sweet and hot, um, blackberries this year, which is really cool. Um, what else have we been getting from them, Heidi? Um... A lot of dinosaur kale, which just, I thought was pretty cool. Peppers, mm-hmm. um, cucumbers. Yeah, lots of cucumbers. Those are our, our biggest producers, though there's certainly others as well. Cherry tomatoes, blackberries. All right, perfect. So Heidi, um, how did you get involved in this? Um, well, I took a food and sustainabilities course for the honors program at Hood College and um, Connie was actually one of our presenters there and she talked a lot about the fr- uh, food deserts in Frederick and a lot of the food insecurity secu- insecurity that people do face and I knew that I, I had no idea about any of this at all up until she came and gave the presentation. So then uh, she sent out an email and had some summer opportunities and I decided to get involved and I knew I had no, like very very limited gardening experience, so I decided I was gonna I was gonna learn something new, and I was gonna be involved in uh, different community service activities, and I really enjoy community service, so I decided to get involved. And then pretty much what I've really learned from this experience is that people don't understand food insecurity unless you're one of the people facing these issues, which I think is really challenging because Frederick's a very affluent area and people probably don't think that people in Frederick face these issues, but you don't really understand where you're getting your next meal from unless you're one of those people. If you're somebody who con- like doesn't worry about where you're getting your, f- your food from, you're not worried about any, you know, you're not worried about um, who is or who isn't. So when you're somebody that's in that situation, it kind of, you're always worried about that. So it's kind of a way that we can all help those who are in need and really don't know where they're getting their next plate of food from. And so what are some of the things that you do Are you besides digging holes to help with the greenhouse? Are you picking and planting the uh, produce? Yes. We harvest, we plant, um, we pot plants. We, I, I mainly help out a lot of the Boys and Girls Clubs. So I know I'll bring over um, new things to pot in the raised bed. So I usually like tell them they really do like the cherry tomatoes over there. So whenever those are getting harvested, I help them harvest them. I help them weigh them. And uh, now it's also kind of funny because little kids don't really know where their fruits and vegetables come from, which I also learned <laughs> that. Um, and it's really funny because from past generations, you know, where you get your potatoes, where you get your tomatoes, where you get all of your fruits and vegetables. But now you'll hold something up to a little kid and be like, hey, where does this come from? And they'll just kind of look at you in confusion. Oh, the grocery store. But that's not really where it comes from. So we're also able to provide them with a learning experience as well as them learning something new. And then I also help out with harvesting, weighing, and then we also translated some info sheets over to Spanish. So a lot, a lot. I know that um, a lot of the there's some low-income um, pop- populations in Frederick that are primarily Spanish-speaking, and I am fluent in Spanish. So kind of when I applied for the job, Connie was like, "Oh, so maybe you can help us translate." And I think it's really something beautiful that we could do for our community because we're also um, uh, paying attention to their culture and what they like, and kind of giving them, you know, insight into this whole new program that's being established. 
Right. And the, these information sheets that Heidi is talking about, these are educational, nutrition educational info sheets. Um, and we focus primarily on the vegetables that might be less familiar for people and, you know, a little bit scarier for them to take. And so each of our distribution partners will provide these sheets uh, where it tells you nutritional information about that vegetable. It will tell you storage uh, practices, best storage practices, as well as suggestions for how to use it and a couple of recipes as well. So we were really excited to have Heidi help us with translating those just to make those more accessible to people of different cultures and languages who might be taking the produce. And so what kind of vegetables are maybe the odder ones that people haven't seen before? Uh, definitely squash. Um, you know, for people who grew up in a household with a lot of vegetables that might seem pretty common but we get quite a number of people who are nervous to take it or just say that they don't really know what to do with it um also even cabbage cabbage people do get excited to take cabbage but sometimes they're not really sure how to cook it so we you know indicate how to ferment it if you want to make sauerkraut or you know saute it for some kind of um, side also plants such as eggplant and even peppers we get people um who aren't really sure how they would incorporate it into their meals. Um, and people love herbs. We do l distribute herbs as well. Um, and they appreciate tips as well in, in what kinds of foods that they would complement. And so if I'm someone who goes to get some of this food, how am I getting the food? Am I getting a whole bag full of it? Do I get one cabbage, one eggplant? How does it work? So we try to use um, existing infrastructure um, in our programming. There's so many nonprofits already and, you know, service-based organizations in Frederick that are working in the same communities that we are. And so we really leverage those partnerships in our distribution. Uh, so we distribute primarily through Religious Coalition, Community Action Agency, Centennial Community of Hope, and the Housing Authority, specifically their senior housing at Catoctin. And so we, they come and pick up the produce every Wednesday and bring it back to their organizations and distribute what works best for them. So, for example, Community Action Agency, they have a food pantry where people have appointments and they're coming through to collect their food. They'll have that produce available in their refrigerated section so that people can see it and take what they want. So it's really just according to their rules and regulations. Centennial Community of Hope, for example, they'll put out produce for people to take home. They kind of pick and choose what they want. And they also use the produce when they cook their community meals as well so that more people are, are getting it that night without necessarily having to prepare it. Religious Coalition as well, they, they make the produce available in the lobby as well as bags. And people really just pick and choose what they want and what, what they think that they'll be able to use. All right, and so you mentioned that you have kids that come, and, or, and is that part of the Boys and Girls Club, and they're just watching the garden? Uh, yes, well, they have, like, summer teen clubs, and then they have the younger kids, and they're all part of the summer program. So um, when I go over and I help out in the gardens, they'll come to help me water, they'll help me harvest, help me weed, and sort of throughout that process, all of the little kids are kind of, like, um, learning how to do all of these practices because in some areas of Frederick it is pretty difficult to have a garden in your backyard and not everyone has a garden in their backyard and Frederick's expanding and you know most people don't necessarily live in your typical home with a garden in the backyard so they'll come out and they'll ask me questions and everyone's learning something new and there's even this one little girl um named uh Kylie she's always she's always really interested and she says she's even interested in growing up and maybe pursuing a career in this which I think is really fascinating yeah and the Islamic Society as well, uh, they also formed a garden club with, with kids that are part of their society to go and help out in the gardens and kind of take responsibility for it. 
And so for people um, who come join um, the Hood One, um, are they taught how to grow things? Are there gardeners who are teaching them how to help plant the right seeds and what the each vegetable needs? The children are the volunteers. Volunteers. Yeah, so uh, the Hood Garden is run jointly between Hood and FMH, and so it's primarily staff um, and in Hood's case faculty who volunteer at the beginning of the season to help take care of a specific plot. So they'll form teams, and each team has their own plot. Um, and yes, at the beginning of the season, we have a fun kickoff event, and we provide training, and then there's also weekly emails uh, throughout the summer letting people know what they need to do. We have educational plant markers as well so that, you know, especially when things are little seedlings, sometimes it's really hard to tell between, you know, what's the beginning of a tomato plant and what's a weed. So we'll have pictures there so that they can recognize what what they should be pulling and what they should be leaving as well as pictures of when, what it looks like when it's ready to harvest um, as well as just kind of instructions for watering or any kind of upkeep that that need, might need. And so if a community, I, I think Matt Aries talked about possibly creating a community garden so if there's other cities that start creating gardens is there a way to get part of the food security network as well so right now geographically we're definitely focused on frederick city um there's always the possibility to expand to more of the county um but right now you know when you're looking at food insecurity and gardens it's it's related there's food insecurity in both urban and rural areas and much of the county is very rural uh but it's the strategies that you would use to tackle it are actually quite different, um, you know, as opposed to Frederick City, where downtown, which is where a lot of the food deserts are, is very walkable um, and close to where people are living. When you get out to rural communities, you are talking about driving. Um, and it's it's sort of a different beast um, that we haven't really had the capacity to tackle yet because there's been so much going on in Frederick City. Um, so, so far what we've been doing is consultations with people who are trying to get, get started something similar um, and kind of giving them what we've learned and what suggestions we can offer them for now. Um, but at the moment, we're really contained to Frederick City. All right, perfect. And so, Heidi, what are some of the things as a student that you've learned because you're part of this ne- uh, networking group? Well, I've definitely learned that um, just like something simple or something like just learning something small can have really a big impact on our whole community as whole as a whole and i've also learned like i said like i had a very limited gardening experience but everyone's so kind and so eager to help that it's really easy to pick up things and then as soon as you pick up something like this like i could go home and teach my siblings i could go home and teach somebody else and it just kind of it begins that snowball effect which i think is really nice and i've also learned that um there's always like you know it's so easy to get involved in our community it's really not that difficult and i've also met some wonderful people along the way like uh connie was mentioning david the head uh gardener over at fmp garden he's taught me like multiple things i've gotten i even got to go into the little the, the bee the little bee house you guys got going over there it's really cool and now I'm, i might even do a course over the winter that's going to teach me how to be like like when those I don't even know the word like the beehive people yeah, a, <laughs> a beekeeper, beekeeper. yeah <laughs> a beekeeper so I think that's gonna be really fascinating so I've learned multiple things throughout this experience I've met multiple amazing people and it's just been overall really good really good summer perfect well is there anything else you think we should know about the uh, food security network or any of the community gardens 
Uh, just that we're very grateful to not only all of our volunteers who help out with the effort, but also our funders. The Rotary Club of Carroll Creek has supported us multiple times. This is not the first grant that we've received from them. And their support and their continued funding of our efforts really make a big difference in what we're able to do in the community. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you both so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about the Frederick Food Security Network, read the Frederick News Post at fredericknewspost.com. Now's the time in our podcast where we talk to Features reporter Kate Masters about the latest in 72 hours. All right, Kate, tell us what is going on in 72 this week and what you may have covered last week. Yeah, well, if you picked up a copy of the magazine last week, you probably saw um, a cover story about Claire McArdle. Um, She was a really actually instrumental and pretty seminal fashion designer who worked Um, in the 1930s, 40s, and early 50s. I mean, she's actually from Frederick, even though a lot of people don't really know her name. I'd say that she's definitely not household status. So she came up because the Frederick Art Club is working on a really interesting effort to erect a bronze statue of Claire. It would be across from the old Union Knitting Mills building on Carroll Creek. And to me, it was interesting, um, not only because Claire herself is such a fascinating figure, but it also brought up the question of, well, what other statues exist in Frederick and who's commemorated um, and who, you know, as a city have we decide to sort of cast in bronze. So I talked to a lot of the artists and stakeholders in that project um, who were all really excited about the project. So just for those who may not have read your story yet or just tuning in real quickly, um, can you tell us a little bit about what Claire McCardle might be known for? Yeah, so, I mean, when I was reading about her, I was just kind of blown away because, first of all, she invented the ballet flat, um, which was really interesting to me. It was sort of based off um, a shortage of leather in World War II, and the story goes that, you know, they were rationing leather, but they weren't rationing it, you know, for ballerina shoes because there aren't that many ballerinas, so I guess it wasn't too much of a concern. But Claire kind of looked at it and had the idea, well, why don't we try to, you know, sort of convert that into women's shoes and see if we can get some of that rationed leather to make you know a practical sturdy flat that women can wear around so that that was really interesting um she was also really well known historically for kind of um being one of the pioneers of sportswear so the idea of you know like comfortable clothes that held up really well um over you know like a long period of time and allowed women to move freely and this is sort of in an era where the silhouette was much more buttoned up in the 50s especially when she was continuing on with her work um, post-world war ii a lot of designers were going back to the idea of a really you know like tight structured figure with girdles um, and big crinolines and clothing that was just not as easy for women to move around in and claire was one of the ones who rejected this and was like no you know i grew up all my life in frederick i mean not her whole life she left when she was in you know her early 20s but I grew up in Frederick you know I'm, I'm sort of this athletic person I want to have clothes that I want to wear um, and so she did that and it was really a pioneering figure one of her most famous uh, articles of clothing was something called the monastic dress which is sort of a bias cut length of fabric that you could cinch with a belt and at the time it was re- really revolutionary because it was right at the start of ready to wear clothing so clothing you know that you sort of pulled off the rack and tried on and took home and so the idea of having this dress that could fit a variety of different body types and that women could style by themselves was pretty revolutionary in the fashion industry. 
So it sounds like a bronze statue is the least we can do for her, and she probably should be a household name. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it would be great if at least in Frederick everyone could know who Claire McArdle is because she really is this, you know, local luminary that we don't give enough credit to. Well, as I sit in ballet flats, I'm, I'm really glad I learned more about her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so tell us a little bit more about some of the, the statues that do exist um, that Claire will be joining uh, in Browns. Yeah, so our, our cover this week is a follow-up to that. Um, you know, and as my editor and I were kind of learning more about Claire McArdle and sort of this effort to, um, as the organizers put it, break the bronze ceiling by commemorating more women as statues, we sort of wondered, well, okay, if the whole point is that statues can kind of tell us about our history and who we valued, you know, as a culture, then what statues exist in Frederick and what can that tell us about us? And so I went to the Maryland room and combed through the news post archives um, and did a lot of research and came up with a list of 13 public statues within the city of Frederick. It was actually kind of interesting that there weren't more considering, you know, history is sort of one of our, um, I don't know what you would call it, like it's a big city feature. Um, But there aren't a whole ton of statues in Frederick, but the ones I found were kind of um, an interesting assortment of characters. So I did a lot of research and learned a lot more about the existing statuary. So just because I've been part of some of your food reviews, and I know that when we were going on a food review a couple weeks ago, you were in the midst of your research on statues, and there was one statue that you had a lot of trouble with. So can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah, so probably um, the the one that I had to work the hardest to find more information on um, was the statue of the cherubs in front of Frederick City Hall. I've heard it referred to multiple times as the Cain and Abel statue, which to me was really interesting because, you know, the, the two little boys are definitely not, you know, your typical biblical depiction of Cain and Abel at all. And so I did some research. I was trying to figure out where that name came from and that's still a mystery Um, but I also came up with a lot of background about the statue itself which at one point was gifted to the now closed and kind of like totally shuttered Peter Pan Inn in Urbana and there is a lot of references to how at one point the statue was given to this restaurant and it was sort of a, a commotion within the city but then I never heard anything about what happened to it afterwards, like whether it was given back or whether the restaurant kept it. And especially like were the cherubs in front of Frederick City Hall, the original statues, you know, like were they returned by the restaurant? And so I did some digging and finally figured out that no, they're not the originals. Um, The city actually, it's kind of a funny story. So the city thought that this 1888 statue was worthless. Um, And so (laughs) they gave it to the proprietor of the Peter Pan Inn. And then Frederick residents were very surprised when they went there and suddenly discovered like the statue looking good as new these two little boys frolicking in a fountain at the Peter Pan Inn and they were kind of like well what the heck like we should have the statue back you know if it's so easy to be restored and now it looks nice again then it should come back to the city and so that was a little bit of (laughs) commotion in the 1950s and what happened was that the city or actually it was the county at the time because that building's former city hall use or city hall used to be the county courthouse so it was overseen by the county board of commissioners so the county reached out to the foundry in new york where they purchased the statue all the way back in the 1800s and found that they still had the mold um for that original statue so it was recast and the boys are now back in front of city hall in a new form although a lot of historical research shows that they were never taken that well care of so hopefully that's something that the city is now addressing 
And, and what happened to the original statue? That's a mystery. I, if anyone hears this and knows what happened to the original statues, please let me know because I have not been able to find anything. And the Peter Pan Inn, I mean, it's not just closed. It's like it's literally a vacant lot now up for redevelopment in Urbana. So I'd really like to know <laughs> where those went. And also, you'd like to know if this for sure is the Cain and Abel statue, right? Well, yeah, and if anyone knows, because I went to the Maryland room, and, you know, it's just interesting because I adore Mary Manick. She's the librarian there, and usually she knows, like, absolutely everything. But we were wondering the same thing, where I just, there's no historical record of why those started to be called, why the boys, the putti, as they're called in Italian, were referred to as Cain and Abel. So that's another historical mystery that I'd really love to solve. And just for those who, you know, may not have seen Kate in action when she's reporting, I got to watch her inspect the statue for any, like, placard that says what they're called. And she did look at every inch of that statue looking for a name of the statue. Yeah, and there were bees. There's bees in that statue now. We were very brave. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, uh, Frederick Uncut listeners, you've got two tasks. Find out what happened to the statue and find out what the real name is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any other statues that caught your eye? Um, you know, another of my, I, I thought another cute statue was Guess, which is actually a greyhound statue at 108 West Church Street. Um, and, and it's a dog. Um, it's actually, I learned, one of a few existing examples of sort of like front porch cast iron ornamentation in Frederick. Um you know, which aren't that common in the city. Frederick was originally Germanic and their architectural style was kind of much more utilitarian and, you know, like sturdy farmhouses without much decoration. But then English settlers came into the city and brought with them, you know, the whole idea of like having sort of more statuary and decorations in private homes. And this is all like very boring and semantic but anyway guess is an example of that it's a greyhound statue that's been there you know for at least 150 years if not more and at one point the statue was stolen by confederate soldiers marching to antietam to melt down for ammunition and thanks to a personal plea on the part of the homeowner who was a big union supporter after the war a union victory the statue was returned and remains there where it stayed you know for now over a century that's a great story. But just since you mentioned um, Confederacy, I, I know from listening to um, a little bit about the story that there are several people who were slave owners that are also memorized in Frederick. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, I think, you know, everyone knows about Roger Brooke Taney and Governor Thomas, Thomas Johnson. Um, you know, that was a big point of conversation in the city in 2017 when those statues were removed from the courthouse. Roger Brooktani, of course, is uh, famous for delivering the Dred Scott decision, which ruled that um, black people could never be considered citizens of the United States. Um, he was also, it, it's actually really interesting, he he was pers- he, he made statements that were against slavery and uh, reportedly emancipated some of his slaves, but um, you know, the fact remains that he still participated in the slave trade and delivered that decision. So it's kind of like a very strange historical legacy to leave and very troubled. But he's now at Mount Olivet Cemetery, along with Governor Thomas Johnson, um, who was Maryland's first governor, owned slaves at Rose Hill Manor. Um, and he also was a co-owner of the Cadockton Furnace, which for um, a stretch of time, especially in the 1700s, relied totally on slave um, slave labor um, so those were the two biggest, you know, that sort of have like a, 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 a troubled legacy and have inspired a lot of debate, you know, given that they used to have a place of such prominence in the city. Well, um, 
everyone who's listened to this and is like, I know of Satchers, I want to find more about them, you definitely need to check out Kate's uh, article in 72 Hours, which comes out on Thursday. Um, but before we go, Kate, where did you eat this week? Oh, so I ate um, at Tacos Carlitos, which is a new food stand. It's actually, interestingly, in the Frederick Scott Key Mall. Um, it's not that surprising given the context of the restaurant. They have two other locations at the Premium Outlets and Valley Mall in Hagerstown. But they've come to Frederick, and their grand opening was met with much fan fanfare. So I wanted to try them out, and I thought that they were really, really good. Um, the general manager, Armando Mendez. His parents own the restaurant and he also has like a very strong personal vendetta against like Tex-Mex cantina food which sort of like sung to my heart because I have talked about how I think there's a little too many of those in Frederick at this point. Um, So I wanted to try them and see how they compared to other um, Mexican places in the city and I thought they were really great. So if all the taco places you've gone is this one that you definitely recommend? Oh yeah I would definitely recommend a visit there. All right, perfect. Anything else we should look forward to in 72 hours? Um, You know, I, I think I wrote about a mural that's coming to South Market Street. So I know that there's, you know, a, a strong contingency of people in the city that really support more public art. It might be interesting to read about that. And then for my What I Love column, I wrote about the Frederick Symphony Orchestra's Camerata, which is a smaller um, sort of subsection of the group that arranges free concerts um, around the county in the summer. So if you are a classical music or a public art fan, you definitely don't want to miss Thursday's edition. All right, perfect. So 72 hours can be found at fredericknewspost.com and also on stands on Thursday. So you definitely don't want to miss this one. Yeah, thanks, Heather. Thank you. Frederick Uncut is produced by me, Heather Rangilio, and edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week.